This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. I don't think we have an easy way to, to, to handle this, and I think it does become a societal issue, which is why it probably is appropriate that it went to the Ontario Superior Court and now to the Supreme Court. That's Dr. Gary Roden on a landmark case that is now before Canada's Supreme Court. He's the head of psychosocial oncology and palliative care at the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre, and the question is, do religious beliefs trump medical opinions when it comes to end-of-life decisions? Hassan Rasuli is on life support at Toronto's Sunnybrook Hospital. His family's Islamic beliefs dictate that he should be kept alive as long as possible. However, both his physicians say the efforts are now futile and that keeping him alive is doing more harm than good. Dr. Roden will give us more insight into this conundrum. Bells ring. Are you Plus, a little-known true fact about Christmas music. From Rudolph to the Snowmen, Winter Wonderlands to Sleigh Bells, Christmas songs and their imagery have become a significant part of pop culture. But did you know that most of the most popular ones are the work of people who didn't celebrate Christmas at all? Coming up, pianist and music lecturer Jordan Clapman will tell us how the Jews wrote Christmas. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week, we lost Ravi Shankar, the master sitar player who helped bring Indian music to the West. He is perhaps best known for collaborating with George Harrison and teaching him how to play the sitar. As a result, Shankar's popularity exploded and he found himself playing concerts in the U.S., including the legendary Monterey Pop Festival and Woodstock. He also helped pioneer the concept of the Rock Benefit Concert with the 1971 Concert for Bangladesh, again a collaboration with George Harrison. He acquired another kind of fame when it came out that he was the father of singer Nora Jones. Less well known, he was also a member of the upper house of the Indian Parliament. Ravi Shankar was 92 when he passed away at his Southern California home on Tuesday. What does it take to live to 100? Well, for starters, being a woman might help. That's based on the latest data from the 2010 United States Census. For every 100 women who live to be 100 or older, only 20 men reached the same milestone. Where you live might also play a role. Out of 53,000 centenarians, 85.7% lived in urban areas where they presumably had more access to quality health care. California was home to the most centenarians, with almost 6,000. On a personal note, I'd like to extend condolences to the Rea family. Their mother and matriarch of the clan, Ida Rea, passed away Monday, less than three months after her 100th birthday. And finally, at 77, actress Dame Maggie Smith has been nominated for two Screen Actors Guild Awards. 
The first in the Best Supporting Actress category is for her role as Muriel Donnelly in the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. And the second is for her incredibly popular role as Violet Crawley in the hit television series Downton Abbey. It's a role that's already earned her two Emmy Awards. And you'll have another chance to watch Dame Maggie as the Dowager Countess. Vision TV will re-air the first two seasons of Downton Abbey starting Wednesday, January 2nd. They'll take us up to the Canadian premiere of Downton Abbey's third season in April. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a deeply painful and personal decision. When to give up hope and withdraw treatment at the end of life. And what happens if a patient's family and his doctors disagree? The Supreme Court of Canada is deliberating that crucial question after hearing the case of Hassan Rasuli this week. The retired engineer has been receiving round-the-clock care since October 2010. He's hooked up to a ventilator and machines that feed and hydrate him. His physicians do not believe he will regain any degree of consciousness. His wife disagrees, believing he is improving. Dr. Gary Roden works with patients and families who face these decisions every day. He's the head of psychosocial oncology and palliative care at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center in Toronto, and I reached him at his office. This case is to answer the question of who has the right to decide on treatment when there's a conflict between the patient or the patient's family and the doctors. How common is a conflict like that? You know, it's not common. In most cases, doctors and families and patients can work collaboratively to develop a treatment plan that's acceptable to everyone. In a small number of cases, uh, like the one you're describing, there is a difference of opinion, and these conflicts are sometimes not easy to resolve. Does it surprise you that this conflict has ended up at the Supreme Court? Well, uh, it, it's unusual that it's gone to the Supreme Court. The doctors decided to take it there. There are many other circumstances where the same situation might have occurred, but people you know, don't choose to expend the time and energy and difficulty of pursuing that path. Uh, it's not a unique case. It's just unique that it's gone to the Supreme Court. So how would a case like this normally be resolved? Well, I mean, it would be resolved one way or the other way. Either the doctors, in spite of what they feel, would continue to keep the patient on the ventilator. Someone described to me a case of a patient who had been on a ventilator 10 years. It can't happen, um, or else the family over time might come to accept that the ventilator can be withdrawn. There's a really a difference of opinion in the case you've described, and we don't have a clear mechanism right now for how to resolve that. Would you say in your experience that in the case of a conflict like this, it's always the doctors that, that give in to the patient's wishes, even though they don't agree? Well, I think that often happens. I don't know about always. That often happens uh, because if they don't, uh, it could easily end up in a medical legal situation, which is not pleasant for anyone. What the doctors are arguing in this case is that this treatment is not just futile, but it's also harmful because of the things that they have to do to the patient in order to keep him alive. In a case like this, it could be arguing that it's causing suffering as well as not improving the patient's clinical state. And they might say, therefore, it's harming the patient because it's causing suffering. The doctors say very clearly that they believe the treatment is futile. The family disagrees. 
So when, when doctors speak about the futility of treatment, sometimes they mean a treatment is not effective at all. Sometimes what they mean is that the treatment uh, can result in a quality of life which they would consider to be unacceptable and therefore not doing. In that respect, it would be regarded as futile. And that's where the difference of opinion may come in because uh, someone who's in a, an unconscious state uh, who may even have little or no brain activity, the family may still regard that as um, worthwhile. Well, isn't that a value judgment? And in, in this case in particular, there are cultural values that come into play, religious values that come into play. This, this family is Shia Muslim, and they believe that that life is worthwhile. So how do you handle that aspect of it? Well, it, you're, you're right. It is a cultural difference. Um, I, I don't think we have an easy way to, to, to handle this, and I think it does become a societal issue, which is why it probably is appropriate that it went to the Ontario uh, Superior Court and now to the Supreme Court. It can't be decided, I don't think, easily in the individual clinical situations. We have no way of resolving it when we can't reach an agreement. In this particular case, uh, this patient's condition was upgraded from uh, a ver vegetative state to minimally conscious. Right. How important is that? Family, in a case like this, are often uh, uh, hopeful that there will be an improvement, sometimes a miraculous improvement, and people might believe that this is a sign that the condition could improve. Um, from the medical side, it might not make such a difference. You know, the medical side might see it as more of an academic or technical difference between the two states. I guess the difference is he can squeeze your hand or something? Right. There are different opinions about whether that is a worthwhile state to be in. You know, there are many people who would say, I would not want to be maintained on a ventilator, even if I uh, had enough uh, possibility to squeeze someone's hand. What about those cases you hear where people wake up after seven years in a coma or ten years in a coma? Well, uh, there can be medical errors or mistakes, and there can be improvement. These are extreme exceptions, and so I guess um, even if one believes that's possible, then it's still a question of whether that would be legitimate, whether because of the possibility of an extreme exception that everyone in that state should be maintained, or everyone who wants to should be maintained on a ventilator. Do you have an opinion on this case? Uh, I don't really see a simple solution. It really becomes a societal judgment about whether the expenditure, you know, the million dollars a year that it may cost to keep someone on a ventilator um, is something that society um, wants to um, invest in. That is the elephant in the room, and that's the cost of, of keeping patients alive in this condition. Right, and so that just like, let's say, um, a heart transplant, if, someone, if they thought someone had no chance of recovery from a heart transplant, they would never do such a thing, right, they, even if the patient wanted it. So pa patients aren't uh, usually entitled to request any treatment that they want. And so the cost um, does come to be a factor. But it can't be a factor in, in, in any individual case. Are these types of issues going to be much more at the forefront I think the main issue as people get older, as people are living longer with illness, and as, pe as the population gets older and more people will be facing the end of life, is, as we were saying, that people ought to have discussions with themselves and their families about these possibilities. Um, and, you know, people need time to get used to these ideas. And so having these discussions outside of a crisis are very helpful. It then allows, I think, better decision-making when a crisis occurs. Okay, Dr. Gary Roden, that sounds like some very good advice. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll be sure to report the outcome of this precedent-setting case. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. We'll take a quick break and then return with a look at a little-known seasonal true fact. Many of our favorite Christmas songs were actually written by members of the Jewish community. 
You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. doesn't know all the words to classic Christmas songs like White Christmas, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Winter Wonderland, or Let It Snow. But who knew that these songs have one thing in common? They were all written by Jewish composers. Jordan Clapman is a Toronto-based pianist and music lecturer who's fascinated by this historical quirk, and he's joined me today to tell us a little bit more. At least 15 of the top 25 secular Christmas songs of all time were written by certifiably Jewish composers. It's an amazing phenomenon. What are some of those songs? They're almost all of the biggies. Everything from White Christmas to Winter Wonderland, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Holly Jolly Christmas, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, The Christmas Song. It, it, it's an amazing list. Wow. Okay, so let's get to the reasons. So why, why is it? It's, it's a little strange when you think about it. Well, it is and it isn't. It makes perfect sense when you hear the story. Um, If you go back a few years, between 1880 and 1910, about 2 million Eastern European Jews emigrated from Tsarist Russia and Poland. And the vast majority of them tried to come to North America, and millions of them did make it to Ellis Island and to New York. And as a result, there were 2 million Jews living on the island of, of Manhattan by 1914. And they were crammed into a very tight and very, very small area, primarily the, the Lower East Side. The Lower East Side. That's right. They wanted to better their, themselves and the lives of their children. And the only way they could do this was by getting into industries where they had some kind of leverage. And the only industries they could get into that weren't controlled by a predominantly WASP establishment were the popular entertainment industries, which were considered undignified. And as a result of that, you have all of these Jewish kids and sometimes their parents moving uptown to what became the epicenter of the American popular entertainment industry. Vaudeville, uh, the Broadway musicals, the Broadway theater, and the uh, Tin Pan Alley songwriting factories. And that's where they were able to get a foot in the door. But why Christmas? Because they would write songs they would, on any subject. And one of the largest demands in the mainstream market, because in order to make a really good living, you had to sell a mainstream song and not something marketed just to one particular ethnic group. They were called upon to write songs for Christmas, which was the big, big um, market. Now, if you look at some of those songs or most of those songs, they they don't have any mention of Jesus Christ or anything more religious. Did that escape? sort of the mainstream audience's notice or? No, actually, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. Uh, as, as the North American cultural experience became more and more secular and religion became less and less important in the mainstream, the reindeer and the snowmen and the Santas and, and all the Coca-Cola imagery and all of that other American pop culture influence became stronger and stronger. And as a result, there was less and less religious influence in the popular music, and there were less and less songs that were selling copies. And unfortunately, it really was a business decision. And more and more that were appealing more to a secular audience that seemed to capture what 
people wanted. And there weren't really any new hymns and carols really that became huge hits the way these popular songs were. Do you draw any conclusion from all of this? I think that the reason that the Jews got involved in writing the Christmas songs was because these songs appeal to very universal values. And all of the all of the winter holidays, whether they be Diwali or whether they be uh, Eid al-Fatir or Chinese New Year, they all have very, very common traditions. They're, they're all about candles and light and little packets of money and sweets and comfort and family. And these are universal values. And it has nothing to do with where the holiday uh, originated. They're all values that appeal to everyone. And I think the Jews realized that when they were writing these Christmas songs. And I think anyone who writes a Christmas song now that isn't parochial is going to have a much better chance of making more people feel included in what is now a very multicultural world in North America. Okay, that's a good note to end things on. And uh, happy holiday season. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. All of the above. Thank you. A beautiful sight. We're happy tonight. Walking in a winter wonderland. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. With just over a week until Christmas, you might be scrambling for some last-minute gift ideas. A charitable donation can be the perfect solution. It's quick, simple, worthy, and you get a tax receipt. But before you rush online to make a contribution, there are a few things to consider. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Zoomer Magazine's Vivian Vassos with her take on the etiquette of giving gifts that give back. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time now for your International Arts Date Book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, see a stage play set in Abraham Lincoln's era. A Civil War Christmas by Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Paula Vogel is set in Washington, D.C. on Christmas Eve, 1864. Fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Bob Stillman and Alice Ripley play President and Mrs. Lincoln at the New York Theater Workshop on East 4th Street. In the Windy City, see Alan Ruppersberg's latest exhibit, No Time Left to Stand Again, the B&D of R&R, is a sweeping look at recorded music from the blues singers of the early 1900s through guitarists of the 1960s. To London, England, where the annual Christmas at Kew Gardens features a vintage carousel, holiday decorations, and family-friendly activities. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. Last week, we touched on the idea of giving charitable gifts for the holidays. But what are the do's and don'ts? Vivian Vassos, executive editor of Zoomer magazine, is back to give us her take. I'm sure that we all get a card from someone that said a charitable donation has been made in your name to Charity X. So I'm wondering, is that okay if it's the person's charity that I, the receiver, may or may not have any connection to? I think that gifts need thought. 
And that's the first point. They need thought. So if you know that someone is involved in a charity or there is something that's very close to their heart, that's the direction you should take. Whether it's your charity or not is not the important thing. You have to remember that you're giving a gift. And if you can give a gift to someone that says that I thought of you and I know that your charity is an arts charity or a cancer charity or a children's charity, then, again, it takes it up a notch and it has more meaning. What do you think of doing it where somebody just makes a donation to their charity and says it's your gift? I think there was no think in that, mm. in, the, in the idea of that gift. And I think that people should give to their own charities with no intention of anything else but to give to their charities. Now, I have an event like this coming up where somebody says, come to my house for a holiday party and bring $20 each, which I will donate to the Scott Mission or to the Salvation Army. What do you think of that? I think that the suggestion might be better to have people donate before they come so that they can have the benefit. There's always a benefit when you're talking about charity, and in most cases it's a tax benefit, as well as a benefit to the charity. If you're going somewhere and you're going to take away a beautiful tray of Christmas cookies or you all get something that you can pass along, I think it's okay. I'm not sold on the idea of asking people to bring money to your home and then you going ahead and, and donating the lump sum yourself. I think people like to be in control of that. Mm-hmm. And is it because they're going to get the benefit of the tax receipt? Well, I think partially that, but I think partially that they they want to know for sure, whether you've known the person forever or not, they want to know for sure that their money is going to the charity. And I think it's more important for them to be able to do that themselves and come with the card or the receipt so they can say, yeah, here's my 20 bucks I, I donated and here I am at the party. Is there an etiquette just overall for this whole business of a gift that gives back? From my perspective, the etiquette is that you give thought to it. And I think it's very important that when you are looking at a gift, it's not just a throwaway. Well, there you have it, some great ideas for those of you who are looking to give a charitable donation as a gift this holiday season. I'm Libby Zneimer, and that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. Come back next Sunday and we'll help you through the last weekend before the Christmas crunch with some stress-busting tips from Dr. Kathy Kamkar. See you then. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nyman. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bandrill. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.